Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Who do you think is the greatest Christian to ever live? If you had to pick one person from the long history of the church and say, this one did the best job at being a Christian, who would it be? D.L. Moody famously said, quote, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man, end quote. Maybe you think that Moody did, in fact, do the best job. Or maybe it was Charles Spurgeon, or maybe a reformer, John Calvin, Martin Luther. Maybe it was earlier in history, like someone like Athanasius. Or maybe uh, you suspect it was an unknown martyr. Or maybe your mind went right away to the New Testament period, Peter or Paul. The idea of the greatest Christian is front and center in our text for today's episode. We'll be looking at Matthew 19.27 to 20.28. Now, it's a decent amount of text, but there's so much that just hangs together. These accounts are often read or studied in isolation, but they clearly fit together. The unit has kind of a bookend structure. It starts and stops with someone coming to Jesus with a question about greatness. In the beginning, Jesus affirms where the disciples sit, literally. Uh, But the end denies certainty in knowing who occupies two very important seats. And these two interactions between Jesus and the disciples uh, concerning positions of greatness are framed around a parable in which, strangely enough, the playing field seems to be leveled. So keep your eye out for that as I read our text, starting in Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. 
But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our passage begins immediately after the account of the rich young man. We concluded from last time that, in a sense, he was too big, too self-righteous, and not childlike enough for the kingdom. He did not have what it took to be a disciple of Jesus. But all of this is said in the presence of the twelve, and so Peter, our usual spokesman, pipes up. The rich young man didn't have what it took to leave everything, but they did. Jesus had just told that man that if he did, he would not only enter the kingdom, but also have treasure in heaven. What's the implication then for the disciples? Jesus affirms that they will not only be in the kingdom, but in fact that they will be great there, sitting on 12 thrones. And the go-to uh, piece of literature here is William Horbury, who has an excellent study on the first century belief of the return of 12 phylarchs or princes, that is, end times rulers of the 12 tribes of Israel, which he describes as in the air at that time. Now, this background clearly coheres with what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Jesus has specifically chosen 12 disciples to match up with the 12 tribes of Israel. But this matching up or correspondence should not be understood as replacing Israel. That's clearly not the idea here. Even as far as Matthew 19, uh, Jesus has not given up on Israel or broken his unique covenant with them. Even in our day, God still has not given up on his people Israel or broken his unique covenant with them. Instead, the disciples here are described not as replacing, but as ruling. We are specifically told that they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The word judge in Greek can function similarly uh, in the English. We can think of judge as pass a verdict, pronounce guilt or innocence. But thinking, for example, of the book of Judges, it can also mean rule over. And here's where Horbury's work is particularly helpful. Uh, Jesus isn't making up this stuff about the 12 princes in the end times. 
He's tapping into the current thought world in which there would be a governing body of 12 that would preside over the end times remnant of Israel. Now, this is a very unique situation. 12 thrones, one person on each throne. It teaches us that God will be successful in restoring national Israel. It teaches us that the future function of the 12 uh, has some sort of eschatological significance. But Jesus steps back and generalizes this for anyone, even us today, who have made sacrifices for the kingdom. We will receive a hundredfold. Now, just imagine with me that I told you that I had a secret tip on the stock market. Now, as I record this, uh, the market isn't doing so well, but let's pretend that I came to you and said that based on some secret information and an unknown source, if you buy stock in a certain company, I promise you that it will yield 100-fold. So if you invest $1,000, I'm guaranteeing you that in the future you will have 100000 Now, that would be quite a claim. If I told you that, you, well, to be honest, you'd probably reject me because I really don't have any secret information and I know nothing about the stock market. So too, the burning question here is how much trust do we have for this Jesus as a source, as a reliable source of information? Do we think he's actually right? Is there really a coming kingdom? Does it really far surpass the one that we're in now? That Jesus calls you to be great in it, but that this requires a commitment, an investment now that will return a hundredfold. Do you believe these things? Between these two conversations, Jesus tells a parable about an owner who ends up paying everyone a denarius, that is, a day's wage. Now, the story has its own frame. It begins and ends with the statement, the first will be last and the last first. And that's the, that's the main idea of the parable. But what exactly Jesus means by it is not entirely clear. Commentator David Turner reviews three prominent takes. He describes them thus, quote, Religious reversal, the tax collectors and sinners who enter the kingdom last are preferred by God to the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, no doubt this is a key Matthean theme, redemptive historical reversal. The workers hired at different times represent successive uh, epochs in history. Gentiles instead of Jews eventually come into prominence. In many ways, Matthew indicates that surprisingly, many Jews reject the kingdom and many Gentiles receive it. This may well be the most prominent view throughout the history of the church. And then the third option that Turner lists is ecclesiastical reversal. Those among the disciples who wish to be prominent will be humbled, but those who are humble will be considered truly great. He then goes on, the problem with all the above approaches is that they are not supported by the immediate context, which places the parable's promise and warning in tension. Although Peter and the disciples will be rewarded, they must not presume upon God's grace and seek rewards. They are in danger of grumbling against God when others who come into the kingdom are rewarded. They must accept whatever reward God graciously gives them without comparing themselves to others. This parable anticipates the problem of Zebedee's sons, ambitiously seeking the greatest status in the future kingdom, end quote. Now, some, including scholars and commentators, interpret the parable to mean that within the kingdom of God, everyone's going to be the same, that there will be no variations of uh, status levels in the end times. 
that all such talk of uh, having more treasure with some being higher up within Jesus's rule is, well, kind of carnal and fleshly. Now, the problem with that, as I see it, is that just as we saw that Jesus clearly affirms some special uh, position for the twelve, he also does that with uh, the, the bit about the Zebedee's sons. From chapter 19, the thrones of the twelve almost seem like uh, King Arthur's round table. But James and John want to be in the innermost circle, the right hand and the left of Jesus. And here in chapter 20, in the episode with James and John, there is a rebuke. But notice carefully how Jesus rebukes them. He, he says, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Verse 23. Jesus clearly affirms that these positions are real, that they exist. The problem is not so much that James and John want to be great in Jesus' kingdom. If that was the case... Why would Jesus have held out treasure in heaven and these 12 thrones if they weren't supposed to view it as a good thing? No, the problem instead is that they were going about greatness the wrong way. The path to greatness is found in service. The way to become first, that is, the way to become important, is to become last. There's one other feature in this passage which clearly shows that there will be variations of positions within the kingdom. And that the path to this eschatological greatness is through humble service now. It is, it is subtly there with the mother's request for her sons, one at your right and one at your left. The expression actually is repeated in 2738, which reads, Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Notice that this passage is, uh, interrupted with another passion prediction, where Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. We also have it there in verse 28. Just as, in other words, Jesus is the prototype or example for what he's been talking about. Just as the Son of Man, and here again we should recall that this has echoes of Daniel 7 and speaks about exalted status, even someone as great as God's eternal king did not come to be served, but to serve. So, who is the greatest Christian? Well, it is he who was the last. As any child familiar with fairy tales can tell, tell you, uh, the greatest person in any kingdom is, of course, the king. Jesus is the first because he was the last. No one went farther down than him, and no one is more exalted than he. Now, we don't know who will one day sit at the right hand and the left, but we do know who will be in the midst. The greatest Christian, of course, is Christ. If we want to be truly great in the eyes of God, we need to be more like Jesus, humbly serving one another, giving of ourselves, faithfully doing whatever God has set in front of us. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.